All right, we're continuing our study of Luke in Luke chapter 7. Um, the thing about the text that we're reading or just read is that it is really intrinsically tied to the text that comes after it. Um, unfortunately, for the sake of not preaching for an hour, uh, we're not going to be able to do that all today. We're going to do it next week. But my encouragement to you is that you read this text in light of the text that comes after. And actually, this brings up uh, another point that is just a good thing to remember about um, coming to church, that uh, coming to church is not a single contained experience. Um, coming to church is part of a practice. And so to come on one Sunday and to think, oh, that's what this church is about, or, or that's what that preacher is like, or that's the kind of message that this church preaches, um, is just not doing justice to the way the Bible is written, the way the church operates. So it's a good thing just for us to keep in mind, not just for ourselves, but also as we think about how we bring other people into this gathering. We understand that these things have to be read in a larger context, and that's going to be the case for today. Um, the text that we're looking at, I'm just going to walk through it. So like I encourage you to, to open a Bible and have your notes sheet out. There's really three sections to this. You can see on the notes, and we're going to work through each of those sections, pull out the things that we can get, and maybe tie a bow on the end of, of this text. So the first thing that happens in this text is John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask this question, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Uh, this is the question, Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? Now, there's some scholarly debate about why John asks this question. Um, on the one hand, some people will say that John is asking for himself. He himself is wondering, is Jesus actually the Messiah? The logic behind this is John is now in prison under Herod because of his preaching. And John is thinking, man, if the Messiah is actually who he says he is, don't you think things would be going a little bit better? Um, so he asks, Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? On the other hand, people will say John is asking as an educational tool, so he's got disciples, and he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he wants his disciples to know that Jesus is the Messiah, and so he sends these disciples to Jesus, get it straight from the horse's mouth, is he the Messiah? Martin Luther's opinion was that it was the second of those, that John was doing this as a teaching tactic. I think Martin Luther's wrong on this one, actually. I think the text leads us to the other conclusion based on what uh, Jesus actually says to those same disciples when they come to him. Uh, he says, go back and report what you heard to John. Uh, Jesus obviously thought John needed to hear this, which leads me to the conclusion that John actually needed to hear this. Now, there's something for us to learn in seeing this. As John asks this question of Jesus, he's like every one of us. He doubts, right? He wonders, is Jesus actually who he says he is? And it's not that John had lost his faith or thrown away what he had, but he wondered. And the circumstances of life led him to that wonderment, right? He, he was in a difficult situation. Things seemed to not be going well for a guy who had preached the good news that Jesus was coming into the world. What gives? Are you really the Messiah, Jesus? I think two angles that we need to take on that when we hear that. First of all, for us as Christians to realize that it's okay to struggle. Sometimes Christians have this idea that they just need to be perfect all the time. They need to always get it. They need to be always peaceful. Like, like life is never going to really get them down. That's false. You're still a sinful person living in a sinful world. And your sinful nature wants you to reject Jesus. So you're going to struggle. But then look at what John does with that struggle. He doesn't just think about it himself or ask his best friend. And he goes to Jesus and asks Jesus. And there are two layers to how he asks Jesus for us to think about. The first is that we can do it, right? Like we can ask Jesus. You can pray. When you're going through whatever you're going through, you can do the same thing that John said. Jesus, are, are you really who you said you are? And we're going to find out later that what John gets as an answer is to go back to Scripture. 
Or Jesus' answer to John, which I'll, I'll expound on a little bit later, is, did you read the Bible? Which is the same thing for us. We want to know what's going on in our life or what Jesus has to say about it. The answer is in the scripture. But there's one final layer to this for us, and that's, that's that we need this scripture regularly. Maybe I identify with John a little bit just because he is in a position of being a preacher, sort of high profile. And the same thing is kind of true for me, at least in a smaller context here at our congregation. And I think I feel what John is feeling because, you know, John's there and he's preaching this message and he's letting it rip. And, and then things aren't exactly happening the way that he thinks they should happen. And so he starts wondering. And I know that I feel the same way. There's times I stand up here and I think to myself, this is so clear and so obvious and the Bible says it and here's what I think should happen and then it doesn't. And that could be for any number of reasons having to do with me or you or the culture or, or any number of things. It's not the point. It's just to say that, that I feel his struggle. And what I found is that what I need more than anything else is God's word. The tough thing is, as a pastor and probably as a prophet, you don't get it. One of the toughest things for me as a pastor is I don't have a pastor. Nobody gets up on Sunday in front of me and tells me how much Jesus loves me. Nobody comes to my hospital bed and says, hey, this is what Jesus thinks about you. No one texts me to say, hey, how are you doing? We haven't seen you in worship for a little while. Nobody asks me those things. And that's hard. And that's the cross that I have to bear. But the point is then to apply this to you and to say, if this is true of John, who Jesus will later say is the greatest man who literally ever lived. How can it not be true of you? You need God's word. To think that you can go a week or a month or, or a couple months without being in God's house to hear God's word. You're starving your faith. You need it. You may not feel it right away, just like you don't feel hungry as soon as you stop eating. But you will feel it. And the more you pull away from it, the less desirable it's going to be become because Satan and your sinful nature don't want you to want God's word. But be like John. When you struggle, when you feel your sin, when you feel the shame, go back to God's word. Jesus' answer to John, like we said, to go back and report is this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The first thing you have to notice about this answer that Jesus gives to John is that it is a near quote of what he has previously said in the Gospel of Luke back in chapter 4. Do you remember the scene? Uh, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's up to preach on that Saturday. So he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, of course, he sits down, and everyone's looking at him, and then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This text from Isaiah 61, it's about me. And that's his answer back to John. John, you're wondering if I'm the Messiah? Did you read Isaiah? The same is true for us. You're wondering who Jesus is? Did you look in the Bible? It's so easy in a culture where many of us grew up, at least with Christian influence, if not actually in Christian families, to have an idea of what God is or who Jesus is based on secondhand information. Our priest preached to us or our pastor preached to us. And it's not that those things are wrong, but are we reading them from the scripture? We have an idea culturally of what Jesus is about, what his love means, what it means to sacrifice for him and be a disciple, but are we getting it from the scripture? 
Jesus' answer is, if you want to know Jesus, you need to open your Bible. He says that to John, and he says that to you too. And that's hard. We find it a struggle to open our Bible, to be in our devotions every day, to be in Bible study once a week, to be here every Sunday to hear the scripture preached. But we need it because it's where we find Jesus. Jesus answered to when John asks, Jesus, are you the Messiah, is to look in the Bible. And the same answer is true for us. If you're going to grow in a, as a Christian, it's not going to be because you're part of a church. It's because you're hearing, believing, and producing God's word. But beyond what Jesus says as a concept, that it's scriptural, we have to see actually what he says line by line. He says there are going to be miraculous signs of the world being restored to the way that it should be, right? Blind people seeing, dead people being raised, and good news being proclaimed to the poor. The culmination of all of it is that the gospel, the the good news, is going to be preached to people. Specifically, he says it's going to be proclaimed to poor people which we need to zoom in on because as native English speakers, I think we have a narrow definition of what poor means that the Greek doesn't have. We think of poor and we immediately think of economically poor. We think of people who don't have a lot of money. But the word in Greek is far more broad than that. It means something like somebody who cannot sustain themselves. Now you can see there's an economic edge to that, but it's more broad than that. A person who can't just sustain themselves economically, sure, but also cannot sustain themselves emotionally or spiritually or relationally. Like they see themselves and they see themselves lacking. They see themselves unable to keep going on on their own strength. That's who the good news is for. The good news is not for people who think they're doing okay. The good news is not for people who think they're pulling it off. The good news is not for you if you feel like God's nice to have around, but he is not my lifeline, that the only thing I rely on to have purpose and meaning and value in my own life. You're not the poor then. And the good news is not for you. Because the good news is for the people who realize that they can't sustain themselves, that they're a failure at every turn, that they can't seem to kick the bad habits that they have, that they continue to hurt people, think evil thoughts and say evil words. That though they try and try and try to be better people, they find themselves running up against a brick wall called their sinful nature every day. That's who the good news is for. And the good news is this. Jesus forgives you. He forgives you. You're loved not because you're a good person, but because Jesus is a good person. You're loved not because you have some powerful spirit within you, but because the spirit of the Lord was on Jesus to proclaim to you that the good news is that he has died in your place that you no longer need to feel guilt or shame over your sin because Christ has paid for it. After Jesus proclaims this to John, says, look in the scriptures, look at the gospel. The messengers leave and then Jesus turns to the other people who are standing there and he asks this question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Now, this is admittedly a difficult section of this text because there's a number of Greek idioms in here that don't come across very easily into English. So I'll try to explain them for you and then we'll get the big picture. So follow with me on this. The first one, I think, is the easiest one where Jesus says, okay, you people who went out to hear John preach, did you go out to hear a reed swayed by the wind? Those of you who know what a reed looks like, it is easily swayed by the wind, right? It has some structure, but in general, that structure sways with whatever the way the wind is blowing. The idea being here, was John a person who just preached whatever everybody wanted to hear? 
Did he just go with the prevailing wisdom of the day, with the cultural narratives of the day, with what everybody wanted to hear when he went out to preach? The implied answer, of course, is no. But that is exactly the opposite of who John was. John was preaching a message that was countercultural. So Jesus says, okay. Well, if you didn't go out to see a reed swayed by the wind, did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? Um, This one's hard, really hard to get across what the Greek is saying to English. But the closest that I can get to you, uh, for you, is the idea of an entertainer. So maybe you can think of like a stage actor who dresses up in a costume in order to portray a character. Those are not clothes that they would normally wear on a regular day, right? But they use the clothes as part of their show. And so that's kind of what the Greek is getting at here. Did you go out to see an entertainer? Well, what's an entertainer? Entertainer is somebody who gives you something of value. Entertainment's not valueless, but it has no lasting value. Right? Whether you watch an episode of a show or not is not going to impact who you truly are day to day. It might entertain you, of course, for a little while, but... As far as lasting value, it has really none. In fact, the the English word entertain is actually, if you look at it etymologically, to get yourself out of reality. It's really interesting. Did you go out to see an entertainer? Jesus asks. What is he saying? Did you go out to listen to somebody who's nice to listen to, nice to look at, but generally isn't saying anything of substance? Of course, the answer is no. And Jesus answers that. He says, no, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Tough thing about this is the word that's there at the end that's translated in palaces isn't really in palaces, it's just royalty, um, which is kind of hard to bring across into English. And so what the commentators will say is that what he's saying is that, no, the people who have entertainment at their disposal are kings. Now, why would that be? Well, back in that day, it was not like our day where you could give a couple bucks to Netflix in order to have a subscription where you could get entertained basically whenever you want. Entertainment was hard to come by. Most families would entertain themselves, well, by themselves. They would, they would do a dance or they would play music or they would play a game. They would do something to entertain themselves within themselves. The people who could offer entertainment to other people were kings. They had the resources to do such a thing. And they did that with an ulterior motive. Uh, The same is true today, of course. Entertainers entertain, usually to make money, maybe also to influence the culture. Kings were no different back then. They would give entertainment to people in order to pacify them, to make them feel good about their rule, to distract them maybe from the things that they were doing that were wrong. To put a point on this, you can look at the, uh, the poet from Jesus' time, actually, a Roman poet, Juvenal, who said one of the most famous quotes about the Roman Empire, give them bread and circuses and they will never revolt. This is what Jesus is getting at. People who just try to entertain you have an ulterior motive. So who did you go out to see? Did you go out to see somebody who was going to tell you what you wanted to hear? Were you going out to see somebody who was just telling you some nice things for a little while, but probably had an ulterior motive? Of course, the implied answer is no, but it is worth our meditation for a moment. What is entertainment doing to us today? This is not a sermon about that, so I'll keep moving, but we all ought to reflect on that. Now, Jesus says, instead, what you went out to see was a prophet. And what's a prophet? One who speaks for God. One who speaks for the God who does not soft pedal things or couch things in really acceptable terms. He just tells you what it is because he's God and you're not. And those things are stark. They are the law, which condemns us of our sin, and the gospel, which forgives us apart from our works. But they're strong, straight talk. And so what did Jesus 
want the people to realize when they went out to see John, they didn't go out to see somebody who was going to tell them what they wanted to hear. And they weren't going out to see somebody who's just nice to listen to. No, they were going out to hear God talk. Which leads me to ask you this question. When you come to church to hear a prophet, now I'm a prophet not in the same way as John was. I don't have the divine revelation that comes into my mind without a mediator. I have the scriptures which give me God's word and I preach them to you. That makes me, in a sense, a prophet. When a prophet gets up here to talk, what do you expect? Maybe to help you meditate on this thought, I'm going to use an example that I borrowed from, I believe it's C.S. Lewis. He says, um, if I said I booked you a hotel room, you would immediately have expectations. Those expectations of what the hotel room looked like would probably be based on, well, your experiences with hotel rooms in the past and your perception of me and my capability of getting you a hotel room. Maybe your family lived in the lap of luxury as you grew up. You kind of think all hotel rooms have like seven beds and seven rooms and they're huge, right? Or maybe you grew up super poor and a hotel room had a door that went to the outside, not into a hallway. A part of your perception of your reality is going to play into it and your perception of me is going to play into that. Do you think I'm good for a room that's $1,000 a night? Or do you think I'm as frugal as, as a miser and I can only give you 40 bucks a night? Something about your perception of me is going to lead to your expectations. And so if I say, I booked you a hotel room, what do you expect? Let's say now you walk into that hotel room and it looks like this. Some of you are impressed, right? Probably most of you. And some of you who probably need to examine your judgment are just saying, well, that's kind of what I expected. <laughs> what if it was like this? And most of you would be disappointed. You don't think I'm exactly rich, but you think I'm better than that, right? Your expectations flavor how you experience something. So what do you expect? When you come here, what do you expect to hear? Do you expect to hear something that, that feels good all the time? Do you expect to hear something that makes you comfortable? Do you expect to hear something that's entertaining? Or do you expect to hear God? Do you expect to hear the God who is the creator and you the creation? The God who holds all things together by the strength of his finger when I can barely hold my own life together? Jesus wants us to meditate on this because when God talks, it's not always easy. Like we want it to be easy. We want to come in here. We want to always feel good. We want to be comfortable. That's just the nature of human beings. But God won't let us be. He's going to preach us the truth. And we're going to let that play out a little bit later in the text. Jesus is going to explain what that looks like, but he's in introducing this idea by saying, look, do you expect God to talk or not? Do you expect this to just be a purely human interaction or do you expect something divine and beyond you to be happening? It'll flavor how you come to a place like this. Jesus then continues that this prophet, John, was more than a prophet. He says, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. This is a direct reference back to, again, Isaiah, who prophesies the forerunner of the Messiah, the prophet who will come right before the Messiah. So Jesus is saying, he's not just a prophet, he's literally the prophet, the greatest prophet, the one we've all been waiting for because we know when that prophet comes, then the Messiah comes next. And then he says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, and yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Two parts to this, and we have to break them both down. The first one is that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Makes you think of like boys on the playground, like who's the greatest hockey player? Who's the greatest character in this show? Who's the greatest human being ever? John. That's what Jesus says. But then you think about who John was. 
John was a guy who doubts. You know that from the text. John was a guy who a lot of people thought was weird because he went out in the wilderness and he preached a message of repentance wearing camel skin and eating honey and wild locusts. Like when God looks at a person and says what makes them great, he doesn't look at the things the world thinks make a person great. He looks at the things that make a person great in the kingdom of God. A faithfulness to God's word, a willingness to speak it, to produce God's word. Think, Lord, Lord, and yet we don't produce his words. It's good for us to meditate on because how many of us are searching for approval from the world, approval at our job, approval in our relationships, approval with the success that we wish we had. We need to be a person who the world thinks is great. In Jesus' opinion, the one who is great is the one who does not care what the world thinks, but is faithful to the word. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And there's some scholarly debate again over what Jesus is saying here. I think there are two possibilities that make sense. They both fit with the gospel. And so I'll give you both of them and you can decide which one you like better, I suppose. On the one hand, Jesus might be talking about himself. He might be saying the one who is least in the kingdom of God, namely me, is greater than John. And this fits with the gospel. Because what is the gospel? Not that God from on high made proclamations, you be this way in order to be good. But I'm going to come down to you and be least in the kingdom. As the book of Philippians says, Jesus did not see equality with God, something to be held onto, but he gave it up, took on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being willing to be crucified, take death on a cross for you. That's the gospel. The least in the kingdom of heaven is Jesus, and yet you know that he's greater than all of us. He became least so that you could become great. Or, on the other hand, Jesus is simply talking about the people that the world would consider to be the least. The people who don't seem like they have their life together. The people who aren't pleasant to be around. The people who have messed up royally. The people who have done things that they really wish they could forget and wish everyone else could forget. Those people are the greatest in the kingdom of God. And that fits with the gospel because the gospel is you are not saved because you are a good person or because you've cleaned up, but because God is great. Because God is good. Because God is gracious for you. And because Christ was extraordinary, you're free to be ordinary. Because Christ was, was perfect, you're free to be a failure. Because Christ pulled it off, you're free to come up short. If you're least in the kingdom of God, then this is for you, the good news. Now, if again, you think you're, yourself to be something, that you're doing pretty well in life, this isn't for you. But if you see yourself as least, if you can say with the Apostle Paul, of all sinners, I'm the worst, and this is for you. This fits also with the text, I think, this second way of looking at it. Because what the text says next is that all the people, especially the tax collectors, those who the world would have thought to be the worst of the worst, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. And on the converse side, the Pharisees who rejected these things, well, they were not baptized by John. The, the baptism of John language can be a little bit confusing there. All it's saying is, um, when John baptized, he baptized for repentance, kind of the same way that we confess our sins. So think like if I would, we would have private confession and an absolution. That was what John was doing, not like baptism like we saw today. This is different. This is what Jesus instituted. But the point of all this is to say, those people who are repentant, who acknowledge their sinfulness, they get Jesus. The pimps and the prostitutes get into the kingdom before the princes. So is that true of you? Do you see yourself as pretty good or do you see yourself in need of a savior? 
Then Jesus finishes with this analogy. He says, to what should I compare this generation? They're like children who are in the marketplace calling out to each other, we played a pipe for you and you did not dance and we sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came eating and drinking, or not eating and drinking, excuse me, and you say he has a demon, but the son of man, Jesus is talking about himself there, he came eating and drinking and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's Jesus' point in this analogy? Well, you know, if you have kids or if you have been around kids, that kids play games based on what they experience. So, for example, in my house, princesses have been introduced to our house, and so every game is a princess game, it seems like. Or the fact that Joanna's going to have a baby pretty soon, all the games are revolving around having babies. Kids play what they know. Well, in, in Jesus' time, there wasn't TV shows to watch or kids' books to read, so kids would play the games that they experienced which in a culture like theirs, with lots of babies being born, would be funerals and weddings. And actually, this is still true. This is actually a picture from a war-torn country uh, where the kids were actually playing funeral because they'd seen enough of them. And you know the many pictures of how we try to make our kids look really cute as they play wedding. Uh, This happens, right? We have this idea, the kids play what they know. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He, He says, you're like children who are playing a game But then he says that they are getting frustrated. They're getting frustrated because they're playing the game, but no one seems to be playing the same game they're playing. And again, if you've ever had kids or you've ever been around kids, you know that when kids start to play a game and either no one's playing by the rules that they have set in their mind and probably not communicated, or they start to lose the game, they get frustrated. Why aren't you playing by my rules, right? Jesus says, that's what this generation is like. They're like petulant children who just want things to go their way. And his example is because John and Jesus did two different things, and they didn't like either of them. John came preaching a message of repentance. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You need to acknowledge your sinfulness. You need to repent and change your sinful ways. And everyone said, that guy's weird. He's got a demon. But then Jesus came, associating with tax collectors and sinners, forgiving people who the world would never forgive. And everyone says, This guy's a drunk, a glutton. He hangs out with the wrong people. John and Jesus gave repentance and forgiveness, the message of law and gospel, and people didn't want either of them. And isn't there something true about that for our our day today? On the one hand, we struggle with the law. When God says, this is how you ought to live, we want to say, I don't really feel like it. That doesn't work for me. It doesn't fit in my budget. I don't have time. I'm not that kind of person. He doesn't really mean that. We hate the law. We don't want to hear it. And we hate forgiveness. Maybe not for ourselves, but for others. How could God forgive someone like that? You expect me to love those kind of people? We can't stand the idea that God would be as strong with his law and as strong with his gospel as he is. And doesn't this fit into the larger narrative of what this text is about? When God comes in, he says things with no wiggle room. You are all sinful. A merciless preaching of the law. You cannot save yourselves. You are no better than everyone else. And yet, because of Christ's death and resurrection, you are free. You are forgiven. Whether you've cleaned up your life or not. Whether you're on the right track or not. It's hard to wrestle with these things especially when they start to play out in our life. It's all well and good for us to sit here and say, yeah, I love law and gospel until the law is on your heart or the gospel is being preached 
to everyone. But that's what Jesus wants. And so he finishes with this statement, wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now there's a a shallow sense and a deeper sense in which Jesus is saying this. At first he's saying something like we might say, time will tell. Right, he's just saying like, look, I'm saying that I'm God and John is my prophet and he's giving you repentance and I'm giving you forgiveness and this is the word of God and you can not believe it if you want, but time will tell. Right, wisdom will be proved right. That's what he says. And that's true. Sometimes God's greatest way of disciplining us is to just let us have our way. Let us invest in whatever we think is most important in our life and just see how empty it becomes. But there's a deeper sense to what Jesus is saying here, and that's drawing back to Proverbs 3. You heard me read it earlier in the service, where wisdom suddenly was personified as a woman. Right? She does this. These things are with her. That's on purpose because the greatest and most unique thing about a woman is the ability to produce new life. And that's what wisdom does. Wisdom produces life. Knowledge and wisdom are two separate things, right? Knowledge is the ability to have facts at your disposal. Wisdom is the ability to use those things in order to produce life. Wisdom is not just knowing the right thing to do. It's doing the right thing to do at the right time for the right people. And Jesus says, if you have wisdom then you will hear the word of God. Because the word of God itself is wisdom. It is what brings life into the world. If you are a fool, you will reject this. If you are wise, you will accept it. And the book of Proverbs will tell you that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So start there. If you want to be wise, recognize that God is God, you are not, and he is going to speak. And it is your turn to listen. So let me put a bow on this and maybe make this as real as I think I can for you because a lot of this is pretty abstract. Let's say you're a parent and you've decided that you are going to move. It doesn't really matter why you're moving, you're going to move. And you have little children and you need to tell them what's going to happen next. And you know that they're small enough, they're not really going to get it. They're not going to be able to fathom all the reasons that you have worked through as to why you're going to move. And so you wonder, well, how am I going to tell them this? You think about different ways of coming at it, but finally you decide, I'm just going to tell them to them straight. And so you do. You get them, get them down in front of you and you say, here's what's happening. We're moving. And this is going to mean that you're going to, you're going to not be able to see your friends anymore and, and you're not going to be able to go to your school anymore and we're going to move out of this house and out of this neighborhood. And if your kid is like any other kid, they're not going to like that, right? That's hard. And they don't get it. And they start to cry and they start to get angry, but you say to them, look, honey, I'm... I, I love you and, and I know you don't understand, but this is what's best for our family and, and I'm going to be with you the whole time and I'm going to hold your hand and if you have any questions, come and ask me and I'll be patient with you and I'll sit with you if you need to cry about it. This is God and you. God comes to you and says, this is what your life is supposed to be. This is where I'm taking you and you may not like it, It might mean you can't hang out with the same people you wanted to hang out with before. It might mean you can't do the same job you were doing before. It might mean you can't do the same things outside of your job that you wish you could do. It might mean any number of things that you have to give up and you might cry about it and be angry about it, but your God says, I don't think you can possibly fathom what's going into this decision, but it's best for you. So I'm going to be with you. I'm going to hold your hand. If you have any questions, ask, and I will guide you through it. And as you think of that from both sides... From the child's perspective and from the parent's perspective, I think you start to see the profound nature of what God does for us. 
that God does not sugarcoat the message to us. He says, this is what it is. Trust me because I'm God. And it's going to hurt because the law hurts. And it's going to heal because I died for you. That's wisdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us your word. We admit that we struggle to hear it sometimes. We struggle to hear the law on our hearts. We struggle to hear the gospel proclaimed to everyone. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and give us faith to trust your words, wisdom to understand them, and the boldness to speak them to other people. We ask that for our congregation, that you would make us a light of the pure teaching of your word in this city for your sake. Amen.